AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for May 6, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today I'm joined by John Hogeboom. Welcome, John. Thank you. And Matt Kaiser. Welcome, Matt. How's it going? I'm Brian Rexrode, and in case you hadn't noticed, our format is a little bit different today. We happen to be in downtown New York City, and uh, if you happen to be in downtown New York City and ha see a tall building with no windows in it, well, that's where we are. So welcome to the program, and uh, we're trying a little different format today just for uh, just to switch it up a little bit. First story, John. Yeah. Um, you know, malware evasion techniques have been uh, developing here, and this is one that really kind of takes it to the... Well, perhaps not to the limit, but... <laughs> right, right. Yeah, this <laughs> it, is an interesting one. <laughs> it's uh, ransomware kind of meets, although it's not really ransomware, but it's uh, yeah. it's a wiper malware uh, variant here. Mm -hmm. So um, the Talos research group, that's kind of an offshoot of Cisco, um, they um, they put out a report here on this piece of malware called Rombertic. It's a real interesting one. It's propagating through spam and phishing, which is not unusual. It's uh, usually a like a zip file. And then inside there uh, is a .scr, you know, a screen scraper, or basically a script mm -hmm. that's going to uh, drop some malware on your machine. So the interesting thing about this one is it's really big. It's a meg and a half in size. However, only about 280 or 28k. I'm sorry, 28k is the actual malware. Yeah. The rest of it is all just bogus function routines yeah. and images. And that's so that if someone, you know, someone tries to reverse engineer it, they open this thing up with some 8,000 functions and they're like trying to, you know, reverse engineer the um, assembly language mm -hmm. to function calls. And they're like, oh, what's actually relevant here and what's not? So it just takes up a lot of time for reverse engineering if you were to try to go that route. It also has sandbox evasion. So one of the things it does is it will try to write to memory 960 million times. So if that's running inside a sandbox, the sandbox is gonna to try to log all of those things, which basically turns out to be about, you know, on average, I think they right. said. Gigabytes or. Yeah, something. I don't know if I actually wrote down how much it is, but it's gigabytes of log yeah. data, which probably just crashed the sandbox. Yeah. But if it was a real machine, the machine would just process those transactions and not really do it. it basically, mm -hmm. it's their version of a sleep function Right. that aggravates the sandbox in mm -hmm. reality. Um, it also does some additional techniques to um, call a function call, ZW get right watch, I had to refer to my notes there, um, and it passes invalid parameters to it. So a real machine should say, hey, that's, you called this function call improperly. But a sandbox might say, well, I'm not sure what they were trying to do here, but let's just say okay mm -hmm. to that function call routine. So they look for that. They look for where a sandbox might be trying to say, oh, it's okay, we'll accept that function call, where a real machine wouldn't. So they're intentionally trying to do things that would give an error and then check that they got that error. Mm -hmm. It also checks active processes for strings like malware, um, uh, sample, sandbox, things like that, or fragments of those words. Uh, so if it passes all of that, gets through that gauntlet of checks, mm -hmm. it'll unpack itself into memory, and it has a big decryption. Well, the decryption routine is not so bad, but the unpacking code mm -hmm. is gigantic. So if you try to reverse engine the unpacking code, it would take forever. 
So then, as another last ditch kind of thing, it will check um, a 32-bit hash of a resource in memory against the PE compile time of the actual unpacked sample. And if it doesn't match, it goes into um, a destructive mode, the wiper mode. Mm. So basically, I, when it's running a sandbox, those values may differ where they shouldn't um, mm -hmm. in a real machine. So in the wiper mode, first thing it tries to do is overwrite the master boot record, which makes the machine not bootable. Um, if it can't write to the master boot record because of some protection, it'll go into the documents directory and just start using a random random key to uh, encrypt all of the files in no the documents directory. Ever recovery, but no right? intent. Yeah, they're not even <laughs> keeping track of the keys that they're right. using to to encrypt this stuff. You know, this is really a technique to for people who are trying, you know, like uh, analyze the malware. Uh, malware analysts or security professionals that mm -hmm. bring this sample in to really probably do some damage to their sandbox or their analysis environment. So now mm -hmm. they're like, oh, I got to rebuild this whole thing, blah, blah, blah. Um, whereas in a real machine, it should probably just pass through all these checks. So they do a lot of techniques uh, in order to evade it. If it does actually succeed in getting past all those checks and it looks like a real machine and it thinks it's okay, uh, starts beaconing out to these. Uh, there's one domain that we have up on the screen there. There might be others, but at the time of the article that they wrote here, there's this one domain that does a check-in. It will start. Um, it'll start sending uh, a keystroke logs. So it mm -hmm. uh, records keystroke logs for uh, logins and passwords for all the. I believe all the uh, websites you visit, not just certain ones like some of the other. You know, some just target certain banks and whatnot. But this one's right. trying to grab everything and then it uh, sends it up. Yeah, you know, th this one was in kind of interesting because it, 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 to me, it is so biased toward the anti-reverse engineering that, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's not particularly sophisticated in its deployment method. You know, it's just basically sending a screensaver script disguised as a, I've forgotten, it was some a... Some document yeah, file, some I can't remember exactly. File. And so it, 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 so it doesn't really have any distribution or propagation method that anybody would call advanced. Um, it doesn't really have a very sophisticated, actually malicious activity. It's, it would be effective, supposing that you get the right targets. But this whole, so much work has gone around, you know, preventing reverse engineering of something that ultimately you're going to know it's malicious anyway. So what is it they're really preventing? It's, a, it's kind of a bizarre right. model. I'm wondering if, in fact, it might have been more of a prototype mm. of something to come to see how effective it would be. You know, I'm just speculating. I, I really don't. It, it had me kind of it, Yeah, I hope it's not the, uh, the standard operating procedure for malware going forward. You know, we've seen in the past where they'll do checks for, am I running in a virtual machine or, you know, various mm -hmm. checks. If they do, they just abort. They just don't do anything further. This one's really taken it to the next level where, uh, and I think, this is just me guessing, their motivation is really to make a bad day for the security analyst who's mm -hmm. running these samples in a uh, malware analysis environment where they might be running many samples through. Mm -hmm. If you are right to the MBR, usually you're going to protect that anyway. Most of our environments we do, but uh, from a sandboxing analysis type of thing. But I think the intention is to make their lives miserable, not necessarily the, the real machine people, because those are just going to run. It's these when they're on an environment where they think that it's um, being analyzed, they want to kind of try to destroy that environment, right, essentially. Right. 
they didn't say anything, if I remember correctly, about who was targeted with this, or if it was a targeted activity, or if it was just sort of a. I don't recall. Yeah, I don't. I don't recall. Because I have another story in my head that we're going to cover <laughs> where it was more targeted, and I yeah. don't remember if this. But this one, one was didn't or not. suggest whether it was very specifically targeted, or if it was kind of a broad sweep of uh, of targets or where the sample actually came from. The uh, it, you know I think the reason that's significant is again if you were to just kind of send something out. It, 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 I mean, again, so, sort of suggesting that maybe this was a proof of concept. Um, I wouldn't expect that something that, like this would be a mainstream thing. You'd be getting too much information from it to be able to, to actually do something practical. Even the command right. and control wasn't sophisticated, which is, you know, kind of right. A, a, yeah, a it looks very Zeus-like in at least the command and control schema right. a little bit there. So. so yeah, I wonder if it's not a prototype so much as it is a demo reel for somebody. I mean, if you, if you get press out of this and say, this is my sample, and you can see all the tricks I'm capable of, I can, I can provide this for your malware yeah. if you just pay me a certain amount of money. That's a good point. I mean, yeah, it's, in the underground forums. As much as it's spending time making it hard to reverse, it's also setting off all sorts of alarm bells and crashing the systems they're using to analyze it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not It's stealthy. not very covert. Right? No, it's not. <laughs> At least in the analysis environment. You know, on, the, on a normal system, a lot of these things wouldn't really happen. So. That's true. Interesting sample. We'll have to see where this goes. You know, the other aspect of this is that, um, it, as we had been predicting, the evolution of more destructive activities. You know, there have been some mass destructive malware events, just a handful of them. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, not even quite a handful yet. Let's keep it that way. But the uh, that has been evolving to, you know, a lot of this uh, ransomware that you, you know you sort of kind of introduce this as close to ransomware. It's not really calling uh, yeah, it's drawn really ransom, out, but right. you know, it's the, but more things using destructive techniques as a part of their repertoire. And in fact, you know, even though this is intended as a anti-analysis function, even, even the uh, malicious actors make mistakes in their code and they could propagate something significant that has a bug that, you know, in some types of systems that are doing certain types of transactions, it gets interpreted, you know, what if it ends up in a uh, hosted server environment that's uh, VM aware or something, and then the next thing you know, right. you've got a bunch of machines that yeah, have been uh, basically are, terminated. Yeah. And so th that's, uh, it's kind of scary, something to be paying attention to. Even what we would consider to be relatively mundane malware from some perspectives could be very destructive in another, right. even if they didn't intend it for, for it to be. So if you are uh, working the front lines of help desk, you'd want to watch out for an increase in number of calls of when they boot their machine, it says carbon, carbon crack attempt failed, and that's all you see on the screen. So when the Absolutely. master boot record gets rewritten, it's just yeah. black screen with that message on it, so and, that would. And carbon crack is an analysis or a reversal tool? Know, I don't know if that, um, what the, what the significance of that statement is, but that's what the malware does. That's what it writes to the master boot record. So it just boots and then it goes into a, an endless loop and just sits there. So it'll never you know, boot the operating system. Mm, but it tells you what it thought it saw, which is that's kind of neat. No, well, I mean, they put that message in. Right, right. Yeah. Oh. So I don't know. I don't know what carbon crack means, but okay. it's their terminology, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, my impression was it was just, in t I don't even know. Never mind. <laughs> anyway, I just thought it's a good indicator that if you start to see support calls, yeah. you know, in your company, uh, of this kind of message, then it's an yeah. indication that. Well, I think even more generally, that just being prepared for massive, 
you know, destructive malware. I think it's going to be, we'll keep emphasizing this as we go forward, that is uh, being prepared for it, that is to consider what the scenario is going to be. I, I'm sure any organization has probably encountered something like CryptoLocker or some type of ransomware. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so that was one case or a handful of cases, perhaps, hopefully, at the most. And so what, how do you consider a case where maybe, you know, some servers have been taken down by destructive malware or a large number of desktops, and you have to restore those? First of all, you have to have something to restore them with. What is, what is that? And then to make sure that you have me mechanisms in place to be able to do it on a relatively large scale. You know, we're kind of used to restoring one or two machines at a time. What if it's 50 or 100 or 1,000 or even 10,000? Are there resources available to do that? Or is there enough automation in place to be right. able to do that? Uh, or at least prioritization plans to be able to do the ones that are going to be most important to business continuity first. Right, so, right. All important things. Very good points, yeah. So I guess more on a positive note, uh, Firefox had a couple of updates. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. So Matt. one's an update, and one is sort of a, a policy um, stance they're going to take. policy, in my opinion. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> we'll get to that one in a second, because I think we'll have a lot more to say about it. Um, the first one is that they are revoking the CA certificate uh, for, uh, the, it's a long name, E-Guven Electronic Bilgi Guvenligi. Wow, I, I, the accent. I, I, I don't even know if that's the right <laughs> accent. I apologize if it's not. Um, but. Basically, the organization who, who acts as this certificate authority is being taken out of Firefox. Mm. Anything that they've signed is no longer going to be trusted. And this is because they didn't, they didn't properly keep up with the audits that are expected. When you're a CA, you're supposed to be able to vouch for everything that you do, every certificate that you sign, and you're under sort of an onus to, to perform certain audits on yourself and prove that you're doing things properly. And Apparently, they hadn't been doing this properly since 2013, mm. so they're being taken out, which, in my opinion, is the proper way of doing things. I mean, if you're not going to hold someone to the standards that are required to make sure that they're doing things properly that impact thousands of your, millions of your users, it's, you're within your rights to do that. I think they recently, somebody did this recently with CNNIC as well, mm -hmm. so it's, it's becoming more of a thing to do. Mm. So is there any notion, any indication of how many might be affected by this? I'm not sure. I don't know if it's, if it's in the, the article itself. I'm sure there are people who are impacted, for sure. Yeah. They're going to start seeing little red, uh, little red error messages in their Firefox when they notice this. Yeah, I guess it's uh, little red error messages isn't so bad. But you know, that's one of the things that uh, is so challenging in any kind of changes that, that is, what are the implications of you know, taking a service out of service or, or changing the way features operate? I think that's one of the things that uh, it has basically been a challenge for organizations that have been around for a long time, established a customer base, an expectation of uh, availability, those types of things, and then you know, making a shift to uh, be more innovative or changing things. I, I think, I mean, I'm kind of drifting off the, the main point, but it's a case where just the simple, you know, let's just pull them out. You know? <laughs> and, you know, at, I, in this case, yes, it's going to, you know, cause some flags. And so perhaps people are going to be more sensitive to the, the, the issues associated with the fact that they haven't been following the audit. But by the same token, uh, it could also even have a derogatory impact that is, oh, well, I always get that flag, you know. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> people, people more lax. Right. So. That's true. I, I'm sure a lot of deliberation 
you know, takes place around making these decisions, but it's, it's not as simple as one might think in the, you know, the, the potential impact. And so when you were saying you were, you, didn't, you were drifting off a bit, I think it's actually still ties in because the next thing that was announced yeah. on the Mozilla blog was that they intend to start not supporting certain features mm -hmm. for sites which are not using HTTPS. Okay. So um, that's a huge amount of the internet. Yeah. Um, and there's all sorts of things that go along with actually setting up HTTPS properly on a site. You've got to get a certificate. You've got to do some configuration work. From a trusted work. signer. From a trusted mm -hmm. signer. Now, there's, there's a good the one that's going to stay trusted. Right. <laughs> well, this is true. <laughs> Don't go for Eagleven anymore. Um, but there's, um, the blog post is good. Mm -hmm. But there's a follow-up FAQ, which I think is maybe even better because it answers all the obvious questions. Things like, so wait, do I have to go out and buy myself a certificate now? Mm -hmm. There's a couple, there's a couple uh, CAs that actually will give you a free cert, and there's the mm -hmm. Let's Encrypt initiative, which is supposed to do the same idea, sort of thing, where you basically get this for free, mm -hmm. just so that everybody has the ability to encrypt. There's other, there's other questions in there, you know, things like, you know, when is this going to happen? It's not going to be happening immediately. It's going to take some time for this to happen. Um, there are still devices out there. For example, if you've got a home router and it's a little out of date and all it has is an HTTP configuration front end, you know, think of a million embedded devices that don't do HTTPS on your local network because they never thought they had to. Mm -hmm. Firefox might not support those in the future, so there's got to right. be a path forward for that. There's a lot of really good points made in mm -hmm. that fact, and I think some of the answers are we're not sure yet. Right. We know we'd like to do this because we think it's better for the health of the internet that everyone has the ability to encrypt, mm -hmm. but there's still a lot of questions as to how exactly it's all going to come together. Yeah. It gets into that there is no really real police force for the internet, and so the question becomes, should you know, individual contributors try to do policing? Is it something that, you know, should, should Firefox be trying to enforce the policy or just accommodating a policy? Interesting. I, it's just a question. I don't know, right. I don't know the answer. <laughs> well, I don't know. This seems really, there's something about this that bugs me in that if you're going to say, basically, we're trying to make HTTP kind of go away and we want to have the entire world move to HTTPS for everything, um, that means, like you said, everybody has to get trusted certificates. You look inside certain companies, large companies, they probably have lots of internal systems that you self-signed? Yeah, you yeah. self-signed certificates. Now, it doesn't mean you can't start your own certificate authority and deploy that into the browsers within your company for your own company, like we do mm -hmm. that. But a lot of companies probably don't. So that's going to break a lot of things or force them to do that kind of thing. The other thing that bugs me more about this is that from an anal analysis standpoint, I'm a security analyst, and all the traffic is encrypted. It makes my job a lot more difficult. Mm -hmm. So depending on what systems you have, you know, proxy logs, if it's just a straight proxy, you're not really going to know. You'll know where they're going to, but not what they're doing there. Mm -hmm. um, and you won't really know the URL path that they're trying to reach even mm -hmm. uh, at that site when it's encrypted, unless you do some other, you know, more advanced proxies that kind of do a man in the middle kind of self-signed certificate back, mm -hmm. handshake thing, which is, it's, you know, there are technologies to do that. I don't think that's well deployed, you know, universally there. So mm -hmm. from an analytical standpoint, it's going to make things more difficult. It makes um, it more difficult. But the good news for you, John, as an analyst, yeah. the malware doesn't have to follow the rules. True. <laughs> and it probably won't. That's right. That's right. right. <laughs> yeah. So maybe the only, thing, the only thing we'll see is malware using HTTP and everybody else, legit, I don't think that's going to happen. But don't worry, because the fish, I don't think that's gonna happen. the phishing pages will be using HTTPS because they'll have to. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I think there's a lot to be, um, 
I, I was a little, I'm not quite sure what to make about this just yet, mm -hmm. but I guess we'll see. We will see. Yeah, we will see. <laughs> Another topic for you, Matt, the, um, I guess Chrome is making some changes as well. Yep, there's a, a new plugin, and this is actually an interesting uh, back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, so Chrome added a, a new feature, a password alert, and I think it's a really cool idea. The presence is if you're typing your password, your, your, your Google you know, account information into a form that's not the actual Google login form, mm -hmm. it will stop you, pop up a window and say, hey, you just typed your stuff into a form that wasn't Google, and we know what it is because you stored it in your browser as a hash. You just, you just sent away your credentials. Are you sure you wanted to do that? Hmm. So I think it's a pretty cool idea because there's enough convincing you know, Google login forms out there that people will just go ahead and type and not realize what they're doing. This at least gives you a way to know, oh wow, this, this happened. However, it turns out that the way they implemented it is not perfect and almost immediately somebody posted and said, I found a way to bypass this with seven <laughs> lines of JavaScript. <laughs> right. did, did they actually provide the seven they lines did. of JavaScript? <laughs> it's on Ars Technica. It's, it's really good seven lines of JavaScript, too. I mean, what, what the code basically does is, and I, I'm not sure why they chose to do it this way, but the original plugin implements a pop-up that sort of mm -hmm. covers everything over from within the page that contains the form. Now, if you understand a bit about web coding and the, the same origin policy, mm -hmm. that means that not only is your script running in that context, anything on that page has access to what you're doing as well. Mm -hmm. So all the, all the script does is keeps checking for a certain object within the, the document object model, which is that pop-up, and whenever it exists, it runs dot .remove on it and just deletes it. Oh, it just mm -hmm. So as soon as you load the page, it may show up for like a split second, but it's gone. Right, right. So that was the first bypass. So then they patched it. Um, and a second bypass was written like the next day. And it's, it's a little more sophisticated, it's interesting. The way that they're doing the check for that password is they're looking to see what keystrokes you're typing in and then mm -hmm. comparing that to that hash value. Um, and it turns out that if you, every time you type a letter, the bypass code submits that part of the form and submits the next letter and submits the next letter. So nowhere in memory do you have that full password to be hashed and find the password, mm -hmm. which is you know pretty smart. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out if you, if you take too long typing it in, the plugin will actually still find it and block it, which is great. But you have to be typing it incredibly slowly. So if you're maybe, maybe you're somebody's aunt is, is you know, hunting, pecking right. across the keyboard, A, B, that way may, it might still work, but the chances of that happening are, are slim. Mm -hmm. um, and somebody else actually wrote a secondary bypass, which is still kind of cool, where in, every time you get a key press event is when that check is done they throw in extra key press events. So you're not typing the password and it's not showing up in the form, but the key mm -hmm. press events are messing with the value in memory, so that hash will never compare to your password. Mm. So it's an interesting back and forth. I think yeah. it's pretty cool. I hope, I hope they actually implement this in a way that isn't you know, subject to this kind of tampering. I think it's a good idea, and I would still recommend people use this, this, this plugin. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, there are ways to bypass it, but I haven't seen too much evidence that people have started implementing this code into their phishing forms. Right, I mean, right. it's, it's public, it, nothing prevents them from doing it. Right. But I think if you wanna have at least you know, some sort of protection against the very base mm -hmm. phishing, the guys who aren't doing that, this will still work for you. Yeah. So I think it's cool. Interesting. Yeah. I'm assuming that this tool is not, uh, is not covered under Google's bug bounty program. 
Because <laughs> I mean, it, it would be a little disconcerting to me if these researchers that are finding these bypasses are basically bypassing the opportunity for a bounty. <laughs> yeah, some people still do that, you know. Yeah, they still do that, but um, mm -hmm. I guess uh, for anybody that happens to be a researcher, you know, looking for security vulnerabilities, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm too materialistic, but uh, it, the opportunity to, to at least check to see if there's a bug bounty that's eligible for your, your work would be uh, perhaps a good thing. So, All you have to anyway. write is seven lines of JavaScript. It's time right. well spent. Yeah, and, and the intent behind a bug bounty program is to fix the problems. You know, if the really if the real objective is to is to you know get the problems fixed, then by demonstrating that you know the problems that exist, you know, it's, to get paid for it is just a little bit better, right? Yeah, it's an incentive. Anyway, that interesting interesting topic, and and I think to your to your point, you're absolutely right. Any of the measures are going to help to eliminate the possibilities that somebody, you know, even the attackers are gonna be missing all of the mechanisms that could be used as a countermeasure against them. So, so it's a counter, countermeasure. The saying is, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. That's actually a very good, it's good for, in terms of uh, security analysis as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, very good. Uh, so let's uh, go back to you, John. And um, I guess there's been some evidence that uh, some mainstream sites being used as a means to try to get a little bit of malware out there. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. And I'm not sure if we've ever seen this necessarily before, but uh, people are probably familiar with like CareerBuilder and Monster.com, these types of websites that um, are looking for, you know, basically people put their job ads out there. Large companies mm -hmm. will put them out there just so that a lot of people see them. And then people can submit their resumes, um, and then those get forwarded to the people inside those companies, and then probably someone in HR, and they might distribute it to, you know, whoever the hiring manager is for that mm -hmm. position. In any event, so some actors out there have just, you know, taken some time to think about, well, wait a second, what if I weaponized um, a Word document that's a resume? and send it to CareerBuilder, CareerBuilder forwards it on. So now me as a hiring manager is getting this um, resume from somebody who's interested in a job. I'm actually, oh, I wanna take a look, you know? Mm -hmm. So they've actually kind of, instead of uh, just randomly phishing people with stuff, they're really kind of getting it right in, you know, you through the proper your resume channel. for your target, right? Right, <laughs> so if you're interested in that company, that's a good way, a good angle in to mm -hmm. get that resume in. Um, so what they've determined is they're using this um, Microsoft Word Intruder Toolkit, which is on the black market. I don't think we covered it on the show. Maybe I didn't even know about it, but I think for the past couple of months, it's been out there on the black market. <laughs> it allows you to you know, basically build a, uh, a weaponized document using a few CVEs that are out there in the RTF protocol, the rich text format. And uh, interesting that they're using that tactic as opposed to the macro virus stuff, which we've seen a lot lately. Uh, in other malware type uh, campaigns. Once it, uh, once the user opens it and gets infected, what it's dropping is a shell door, backdoor, which is tied to Russian actors, or at least somebody tied it to Russian actors back in 2011. Not to say that whoever's behind this activity is Russian, but there's a pretty good write-up about Sheldor out there on the internet uh, mm -hmm. that kind of describes how it works. It's basically, uh, you know, a backdoor kind of toolkit. Alongside that is bundled a TeamViewer client, which is a little disconcerting. So basically, if you're not familiar with TeamViewer, it's uh, similar to some of these other uh, remote desktop type things. 
but the machine on the inside that runs the client connects back to the team viewer, central command, whatever, and then the user, the attacker, connects back there. And it allows, mm -hmm. so if, you're be, if the machine's behind a netted kind of environment, you can still connect to it and remote control that device. Uh, you know, the attacker can. Mm -hmm. So that's a little disconcerting. So I would say you might want to keep an eye out for team viewer um, activity within your network enterprise. The fact that it's a commercially available tool. It is commercially makes available. It more, yeah, it, does, it doesn't look as malicious in a normal right. environment. Yeah. So you'd have to kind of weed out what's legitimate use of team viewer versus non-legitimate, just mm -hmm. like you would in any of these other, uh, you know, legitimate tool sets like remote desktop and whatnot. That's the basic gist. So. You know, I would say due diligence, go maybe do a little bit more inspection on emails coming in from some of these job mm -hmm. websites, or maybe think outside the box of their other sources where people are intentionally funneling in because we want them to funnel in documents to us, mm -hmm. you know, through these types of sites. I don't know if there are any others. I haven't thought of it, but it's kind of a clever way of, you know, shooting malware into a specific target that mm -hmm. you're interested in. You know, I was at the IONS conference a couple weeks ago, and they actually spoke about this idea that there are certain parts of organizations that are more vulnerable because the nature of their job is to open up PDFs and Word documents all day long. Mm -hmm. HR being one, maybe PR, mm -hmm. maybe certain groups that collect like competitive intelligence or things like that. You know, all they do all day is open up these file formats that have the capability for those, mm -hmm. those exploits. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point. So if you can identify those areas in your company. You can maybe a give them focus a, on that, yeah. a little more, you know, education or maybe, I don't know, configure their, their Word and PDF readers. Tighten the thresholds a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's a very good point. You know, I, I would even take it a step further. I think some of the impetus here, these things are being delivered through a third party that's a trusted third party. Mm -hmm. I'd put a little bit of pressure on those organizations that is, uh, if they're providing documentation to you, it should be clean, or at least to the extent that they're able to, to do that. So I was going to ask you, do you know if that uh, the intruder toolkit or the mechanization of that, is that generally uh, detectable by a... a, a I don't know. Yeah, I'm not quite sure from an antivirus standpoint how well it's detected. I would imagine it is at this mm -hmm. point now that this is well known or mm -hmm. at least somewhat more known three weeks ago. Maybe not as much. All right. Depends on, you know, a lot of these types of, you know, that 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 word in word Microsoft Word intruder toolkit, it's using some standard CVE. So there's a potential that, you know, some of the antivirus vendors would kind of say, hey, wait a second, I'm looking at this you know, Word document or an RTF file, and mm -hmm. it's got that exploit they're trying here and, and stop it, irrespective of whatever toolkit built it uh, kind of thing. So, but it's hard to say, I don't, I didn't see any statistics okay. on that. Well, that'd be the kind of thing I think that'd be paying attention to. And of course, um, I think these documents come in in a variety of formats. You mentioned PDFs, yeah. and we know that those get weaponized in, mm -hmm. in, uh, <laughs> in a variety of ways. And so uh, it wouldn't be specific necessarily this thing. I think the uh, understanding this general theme as an avenue of potentially uh, uh, an attack vector is probably the most significant part of this. Yeah. I kind of wish we had done that story first, in fact. So, <laughs> in any case, uh, so let's take a look at the uh, internet weather for the last week or so here. Uh, the first item here is really, uh, you know, consistent with what we reported last week. We've been reporting on SNMP uh, reflection attack activity. You know, this has been around for years. I don't want to make it uh, look as if this is uh, some type of a new attack activity. Uh, I remember being in discussions with some uh, peer organizations about this topic and the concerns 
concerns around it and actually having some uh, real events associated with it that were rather significant. Uh, a lot of that got locked down, but I think one of the uh, sort of the underlying point that I'm trying to make here is the fact that most of these things don't really go away you know, just because you know about it and even have ways to, to deal with it. This is a case where uh, there's still exposed SNMP devices, SNMP-enabled devices out on the Internet, and uh, they're being used for attacks. But the good news is, is it has seemed to have tapered off over the last uh, few weeks here. So uh, we hope it stays that way. On a similar note, you know, we've been reporting on uh, this port, you know, scan sources on port 4143 UDP as well as 4183 UDP. And uh, basically they were, you know, 4143 is mostly U.S. and the 4183 mostly in uh, Latin America and Europe. That also has been sort of tapering off, comparatively speaking. We still have not really kind of determined what that was, but uh, it does, it, it had, definitely has some strange characteristics around it. John, I think you had sort of indicated that it looks like, you know, a, a sort of a variety of internet-connected devices. Um, yeah, it looks like a lot of those embedded-type devices, DVRs, right. home routers, DSL so, modems, things like that. And we had speculated sort of a, a P2P activity going on here. but Suspected, uh, but I never actually saw never, two devices talk right. to each other, so it's kind of weird. Well, and to put it in context, it's not, it's not as if there are huge numbers of addresses doing this. So they would have to be, you know, if they're doing basically a random search, it's going to take a long time to find a peer that has this. So in any case, uh, that activity seems to be tapering off, still tracking what's going on there. Next item here is actually is uh, probes on port 1153 TCP. Uh, this is uh, registered. Uh, excuse Sorry. me, thank you. Uh, 1158, I'm so used to saying 53. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 1158 TCP, that's DB Control OMS, OMS standing for Oracle Management Service. Uh, we're showing actually 180 days of activity here. I don't think we've reported on this before when I did I don't a quick search. It either. I hadn't seen it, but uh, it's not as if this is actually new activity, so I kind of wish we had reported on it before. In any case, there are basically two sources from China that are scanning on this port. They are working basically on, on independent intervals. But it's interesting to note that most of the probes come from one address, and they appear to be very random. And then maybe about one-tenth as many of the probes come from, uh, and I'm roughly estimating here, come from another address. And those are very frequently successful connections. That is, there connections. are other, there, at least um, other flag activities as opposed to just a, sort of a send, send packet sent. And so it appears as if they may be actually working together, that is one to identify where connections are accepted or some kind of response is received, and then the second one to go through and do a, a further investigation and perhaps profile or maybe even to do, again, I haven't seen specific evidence, but perhaps to do password guessing or something or vulnerability checks, that kind of thing. It turns out that uh, at least one of those addresses, I did a quick check, uh, that's doing the, it was the one that was doing the frequent probing and act, uh, scanning activities. Also scanning on other ports that, uh, some of which are really very closely related. 1433, which is Microsoft SQL database. Uh, this being the 1158 being associated with Oracle database. Um, 1521, that's uh, uh, that's actually another Oracle. That's another Oracle, uh, yeah. Another Oracle port as well. Uh, 1723, a little bit of anomaly there, that's a H3 
Is it, I'm not sure if it is or not. Oh, no, shame on me. I should have checked. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I knew and then I forgot. I feel but like anyway. that might be another Oracle TLS listener port or something, right. but I could be wrong. And Matt's going to look it up while yep. we talk a little <laughs> bit more here. Port 3306 is uh, Microsoft, excuse me, MySQL database, which happens to be owned by Oracle as well. <laughs> and then uh, 3389, with a remote desktop protocol, which is basically, uh, you know, obviously remote desktop protocol. We see that frequently. That's a good thing. Go 1723 ahead. is point to point protocol. Actually. PDP, okay. Uh, so. PPTP. Oh, PPTP. Oh. Yeah, so it's that PPTP tunneling protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, perhaps a remote access path or something yeah. uh, to be vulnerable. So, in any case, uh, keep an eye out for those types of activities because there certainly are actors that are trying to get into your database or your enterprise. Uh, by the way, I think in many cases that uh, we've probably said this before, but uh, I think many cases these database penetrations aren't necessarily going after the database itself. I think they're looking for an avenue into the enterprise. Um, that is, if you're operating a database server, invariably you're going to have some path to get data in there or manage the data, other transactions are taking place. And uh, so it's an opportunity to perhaps, uh, you know, use features of the database that are often overlooked to be able to get administrative access to the machine perhaps and then perhaps move laterally. So exposure of a database uh, is oftentimes uh, sort of a, from an attacker's point of view a, a potential gateway. You know, I am thinking about it, though. For some, some attackers, the whole point is simply gaining access to the database and dumping the contents to Pastebin. Maybe. To say, hey, we're Weed Hacker Crew 27. We got into somebody's database. We had no idea we were trying to get into the database, but when mm -hmm. we found it, here it is. Yeah, right. I, I agree. That's absolutely true. But in this particular case, I'm just uh, I'm speculating based on the remote desktop protocol, the PPTP, those types of things that kind of suggest uh, it's really kind of just trying to get access. <laughs> Uh, next item here, the top 10 most probed ports at the top of the list, port 22. We've been talking about that, 445 TCP, no surprise there, 1433. We've had a couple move up, port 80, 8080 TCP, and eight ICMP moved up a few slots. We haven't looked at that for uh, actually forever, so I'm going to go ahead and take a look at that in a, bit, a moment here. Port 9200 TCP. Elasticsearch. Oh, the Elasticsearch. Uh, I think there's something I think we're going to look at that right? a little bit more closely in a moment yeah. here. And 1900 UDP is associated with SSDP, which is uh, used in reflection attacks. Now, one of the significant items here is that uh, about half of this is associated with others. And uh, so the question was, well, how many others? And so in, in this particular case, uh, and this actually being from May 4th, we had 1,495 other ports and protocols that had been probed in the context of uh, this activity. We're just showing the top 10. So you can imagine that there, uh, what's going on there. And I thought, you know, maybe there's some trends associated with this. So we uh, went back and uh, extracted the data. This isn't actually one of our sort of automated reports, so I had to do it in a, in a spreadsheet. But in this case, it's basically showing over the last five months or so the number of ports that have been probed on a particular day associated with this uh, probe tracking activities. Frankly, I don't see any direct correlation to the size on the pie chart. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it is kind of interesting that there are surges in, in time where there are lots of different ports that are being probed on a given day. This, I want to make a distinction here. This is a case where we're seeing 
lots of uh, probing activity to different ports that's distinct from a single address that might be probing lots of ports on a particular address. And so uh, there, there's a subtle distinction there. So they, there is, um, but there is a distinction. I, I don't know what else to say. Interesting graph. If you, <laughs> if you have any thoughts or questions about this, I'm certainly welcome to entertain those. As I mentioned, we'll take a look at the ICMP8 activity. You know, ICMP8 is a ping request, but I don't right. know that it actually gets used all that much for a ping request. Uh, like, I think on a Windows system, if you send a ping, it's some kind of a UDP packet. It's uh, like some uh, systems free. use UDP, others use right. TCP. I forget which right. Is which. right. Uh, but in any case, uh, this is one that's registered for ping requests. And oftentimes, this gets used to basically scan for addresses that respond. And then there might be a follow-up activity to probe for what services might be open on that particular service. So that's, that's one of those distinctions that I was trying to make earlier. That is, uh, if you find an address that responds and then the address comes in and probes across a number of different services, it will register in our analysis differently than a case where you're just probing across and then changing it to a different port and then to a different port or something like that. So, uh, But anyway, it, what is interesting about this is the graph actually Actually has a few different um, uh, characteristics. One is that you can see that there's actual regular probing activity on a sort of a daily basis, where there's you know basically they're very close together, but there's spikes of activity. We're looking at a year of data, so it did get kind of smushed together. Smushed is a technical term. <laughs> and uh, but in any case, the uh, they they kind of get. But you can see the spacing where there's uh, a daily probing activity. But you also see these sort of big jumps and drops in activity that are taking place, and that is a clear indication that uh, there are just a small number. You know, a lot of the activity or a large portion of the activity can be associated with a small, basically a single user right, activity. Single actor, yeah, right. a single actor where they've started activities, it's taken place, and then it goes away for a little bit, and then it comes back, and that doesn't happen by accident. So lots of other noise underneath there, but some of the most aggressive actors in terms of uh, uh, participating in this type of activity, uh, they're not hiding. That's <laughs> yeah. what it comes down to. <laughs> okay, uh, scan probes on port 9200 TCP. As we said, Elasticsearch, Lexmark printers apparently answer uh, on this port. Some sort of uh, web access, WAP. Oh, yeah, there's a, a wireless access service that uh, is uh, used as well. In fact, that's the registered, has registered in IANA as the uh, registered port. So we're not exactly sure what this is targeting. It's been going on since, uh, I think, the uh, beginning of March, where, I mean, obviously other noise off to the left there, but we're showing 90 days of activity, and there has been an increase, and that continues to uh, take place and uh, obviously triggering some alerts from our point of view. And in terms of the top 10 most sources doing the probing, not a lot of movement here. Uh, we've been uh, basically seeing port 445 at the top of the list, ICMP type 3, code 3 uh, activity on there. That's uh, basically a, um, a you know, can't get there from here. Something it's, like that. Yeah, I generally characterize uh, ICMP3 and ICMP11 is you can't get there from here. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of like a Jersey barrier on the highway in New Jersey. <laughs> 
followed by port 23 TCP, ICMP8 that we talked about, and then uh, some others. The one thing I wanted to share with you, uh, a little more investigation, is a port 17788 UDP. We'd investigated, oh, first of all, with the, we'll take a look at port 23, I digress. Uh, looking at the last 90 days of activity, you know, this is one that's very significantly associated with uh, Internet of Things, you know, devices that are being probed. They happen to be uh, serving Telnet and oftentimes have default passwords that the users, uh, owners of those devices didn't know need to be reset. We clearly see this botnet activity on uh, April, looks like just 17th or 16th or so, we saw an increase in the activity on that port, and then uh, it seems to be tapering off a little bit. There seem to be some other things going on in the uh, creating some noise here and the uh, sort of the typical decay. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what might be causing that, but um, uh, nevertheless, it's, uh, it's there. So back to 17788 UDP, uh, John, I think you had investigated this a little bit more. It looked like BitTorrent activity. Right. There's like little info hash requests and things mm -hmm. that we see in this traffic. So I don't know. It looks like BitTorrent to me, yep. but I don't know anything that's officially assigned to this yeah. that I'm aware of. And, uh, you know, since the activity had been growing, it was one of the things that uh, I felt needed to be investigated a little bit further. So we do have some analysis that picks up on sort of correlation activities. And it did correlate it to, it correlated to a website that was basically advertising uh, video content that appeared to me to be pirated content. It didn't appear to be sanctioned by the organizations that, were, that would normally be... Uh, you know, offering that sort of content. Right. So my suspicion is here that this is uh, actually a BitTorrent network, uh, probably not performing attack activity, but more along the lines of perhaps distributing uh, some like uh, streaming video content, streaming video pirated. content that's been pirated of some sort. So that's the theory behind this. And uh, so from a security standpoint, probably somewhat innocuous. But uh, if you see this type of activity, something you probably want to be paying attention to, particularly on an enterprise, you don't want sort of content floating around your enterprise. That's, uh, that's our theory. So that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us by email at threattrack at list.att.com. You can find the Threat Track program on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's att.com slash threat track. It's also available on YouTube as well as on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. Thanks, John. Yep. Thank you, Matt. Good discussion today. Uh, I hope you like our sort of new format, our sort of trial in this space here. And uh, I'm Brian Rexro. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. And I'll uh, finally note, next week, Dan Kaminsky joining us. Yes. So we're looking forward to that. He, this should be an engaging discussion. So thanks very much. Good day. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.